I'm calling from Yerushalayim. We're about to, one hour from now, go into the third lockdown. So everyone is getting ready frantically here to get all their provisions in line for the lockdown. <laughs> I'm going to share my screen with you and I'm showing you uh, the Haftorah from yesterday. And the Haftorah, in a very enigmatic way, takes the idea of Judah and Joseph. Remember the Parsha is by Yigash Elov Yehuda. Uh, Judah approaches Joseph and for a very enigmatic reason, Chazal appends this Haftorah from Ezekiel about the future messianic era. Verse 16, Take a stick, write on it the word Judah, and the children of Israel, his companions. Now take another stick, take another stick, and write on that stick, Le Yosef for Joseph, Eitz Ephraim, the stick of Ephraim, his son, Bechol Beis Yisrael Chaveirov, and all Beit Yisrael, not Bnei Yisrael, but Beit Yisrael, his companions. Now I want you to take those sticks, God tells Ezekiel, for Korav Otam Echad El Echad. I want you to entwine them. They must have been pliable sticks. And I want you to entwine them into one. Lecha. Le'etzechad. They shall be one joined stick. They shall be like a unity in your hand. When the people come to you and say, Oh, Ezekiel, what are you doing? What is all this magical business with the sticks? Hello, tagid lanu. And tell us what, what, what's going on here. What are you, is this a divination? What is happening? Dabe alehem, tell them. Elohim. Thus saith the Lord God. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph. Well, there was no Joseph. The northern tribes were Ephraim, right? That's the northern tribes. The Shifte Yisrael and the tribes associated with the northern kingdom. I'm going to stick them with the southern Judah and Benjamin. They shall be one. Okay. Which means in the hoary future, verse 21, I will return the exiles. We have been privileged to see that. I'm going to return the exiles to the Holy Land. Unlike now, when there's the Northern Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom, Ezekiel is being promised by this image of the twig, the, the, the image of the entwined twigs. Uh, he's been promised that I will bring them back and they will be reunited. Very nice. Now, Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, who was a rationalist, he came from Frankfurt 
and um, his parish on the on the Cedra uh, writes, "We are in Galut, and the definition of the Galut is a Galut of the mind." And he bewails the continuing strife because what he sees back then in Ezekiel in the fifth century, he sees played out in Jewish history that there is a northern tribe, yes, geographically, but there is a northern mindset called Ephraim or Joseph, and there is a southern mindset called Judah. And so he calls them the Ephraim Jew and the, the Yehuda Jew. <laughs> and he pits them one against the other. And now he describes the two types of Eden. The Ephraim Jew, by his systematic disavowal of the divine Torah, seeks salvation. And remember, he's writing in the 19th century and all around Frankfurt is Haskalah. And even modern orthodoxy in Würzburg, right? The Würzburg school. Uh, he developed what was called Austritzgemeinde, which means separatists like Aguda were not part of the modern orthodox, uh, the neologue, the orthodox. No, no, no. That's too assimilationist. We have to Austritz. We have to separate. And there were only two schools in Frankfurt and I think in Hamburg that were the Hirsch schools of separatists, right? And he's bewailing the Jew that is assimilating. And he seeks salvation in political greatness and finds a substitute for the lack of protection from God by vain efforts to obtain alliances with the nations among whom it hopes to blossom out in brotherhood. That's a direct quote from Hosea. So there's a critique of that northern kingdom that made alliances that Hirsch sees in his own day in which Jews arrive and come to great power. I told you a week ago that there was a board of the FDA that were trying to approve the new COVID drug you know, Hirschfeld, Bernstein, Goldberg, right? And if you just go back a generation, and if you look at nuclear fusion, if I can just read out the names to you, besides Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, there was Leo Gillard, S-Z-I-L-A-R-D, died in 64, born in Budapest. He helped Enrico Fermi, who was married to a Jew, to conduct the first controlled nuclear chain reaction. Niels Bohr, who died in 62, was the first to apply quantum theory uh, to the nuclear structure. And he was born in Denmark to a Christian father and a Jewish mother. And Bohr won a Nobel Prize in 22 and narrowly escaped in 43, pursued by the, the, the Nazis in Denmark in 43 because his mother was Jewish. He worked on the Manhattan product, product with his son. Lisa Meitner died in 68, was born in Vienna. She was involved in nuclear fission. She analyzed her results with her nephew Otto Frisch, Walter Zinn, and Fernie. They directed the first controlled nuclear chain reaction at the University of Chicago in 1942. 
Hungarian-born Edward Teller led the U.S. team that developed the first hydrogen bomb. And the list goes on and on. The most fascinating, of course, is Robert Oppenheimer. The first, he was a U.S.-born theoretical physicist uh, who was chosen to direct the Manhattan Project in 42. And it was his team that in July 45 exploded the first world's first atomic bomb. Three months later, he resigned as the project director and opposed the development of the hydrogen bomb. He was accused of being a communist and vilified in public. And though, although he was exonerated eventually, the experience broke him. He came from a wealthy Jewish family in Manhattan. He was an aesthete. He was an intellectual, a philosopher. Once his colleague wrote about him, he reminded me very much of a boyfriend, boyhood friend about whom someone said that he couldn't make up his mind whether to be president of the B'nai B'rith or the Knights of Columbus. He really wanted to be both simultaneously. He wanted every experience. In that sense, he never focused. Had he studied Talmud and Hebrew rather than Sanskrit, he would have been a greater physicist, maybe. These people are the Ephraimites. They are the Ephraim Jews that want to assimilate and have done well and have performed well, as Jonathan Sachs reminds us constantly. 25% of all Nobel Prize winners are Jewish, right? So when we do it, <laughs> we do it well. Heinrich Heine became a Christian because that was his ticket into West society. He writes that. And then there's the Yehuda Jew. Now, what does Hirsch say about the Yehuda Jew? The Yehuda Jew, in principle, acknowledges Hashem as its God and is still far off from unreserved bitachon. He criticizes the Yehuda Jew for failing to apply the same standards in relation with his fellow man as he does with his kashrus. Had I read that today, and you would have told me that, the last person I would have thought that be would be Shimshon Rafal Hirsch. Why? Because when his followers came to Manhattan and lived in Washington Heights and then in Monsey, uh, over the last 60 years, they, they just became unified with the Haredi world. And their children went to Chadorim and their, their grandchildren didn't get a secular education. And the whole Torah in Derech Eretz fell away. All the Yekas in Lakewood today that stim from Hirsch, I chepper them because I go, uh, where do you send your kids to school? A Yiddish speaking Haida. Really? And you're a Yekka. I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't have thought for a minute he would have said that. So he is chiding the Ephraim Jew for giving up on our Masorah. But he's also chiding the Yehuda Jew for being a Luftmensch, for being in Kashrus and Chumrus without thinking about his neighbor. And so when the Son of Man in the future, when he looks at our Haftorah in Ezekiel and says, take to yourself a piece of wood and write on it Yehuda and take another piece of wood and take those Ephraim Jews to reunite them, the two chips of wood representing the two tribes will be united, meaning they both have something to offer. Hirsch is very forward-looking in that sense that the secular Jew has something to offer. Okay, now 
I want to read, I want to go to back using that perspective from the Haftorah and that unique uh, rabbinic insight in melding the Haftorah of the twinning of the tribes of Ephraim and Joseph with Yehuda. Bring it back to bear on the first two psukim uh, of our pericope here. And this is the beginning of our Pasha. Can everyone see it? Vayigash Elov, right? Yehuda, Vayomer, Bi Adoni, Yadav So Rashi says, quoting the Mechilta and from Genesis Rabbah, Vayigash Elov, Al Yichar Apachobavdecho. Please don't have a rage attack at me. So Yehuda's coming to him cap in hand. Be Adoni, if it please my Lord, don't get rage. And Rashi says, you are esteemed in my eyes like Pharaoh. That's its simple meaning. Don't get upset because you are really important to me. You are important to me and powerful, just like Pharaoh. But the Midrashic is just the opposite. Midrasho, sofcha lilkot olav b'tzaras. In the end, guess what? You're going to be punished if you carry on with what you're doing with my brother holding Binyamim and not letting my father see him ever again. You'll be punished with Saras the way Paro was punished. You go back when Avram went down to Mitzrayim. And Sarah was taken to the bedroom of Paro. And Paro suddenly became leprous. You will, that will same thing happen to you. Dovaacha, just as Pharaoh issues decrees and does not carry them out, so will you. And now the last one is, Kikamocho Kaparo, which is what? Im takniteni, if you provoke me, erot otcha vet adonecha. So this is Yehuda, in a midrashic way, because Vayigash is to approach him, and this approach is uh, something very, very powerful. And now he he treats him. Right? And he he then says, "Ki I was a surety for the lad." If I don't bring him back, and now he says to Joseph, let me stay instead of the boy. How can I go to my father? And it's this statement of Judah, let me be a substitute for the boy. I come from Leah. The boy comes from Rachel. But when Yehuda makes that crossing from the tribalism of Rachel's boys to the tribalism of Rachel, Rachel uh, from the tribalism of Leah's boys over to the tribalism of Leah's boys and says, I will be a substitute. Take me instead of Binyamin. Lo yachol Yosef lehitapek. That triggers him. He couldn't bear it anymore. So the question is, what took place? And I think that the bearing of the Haftorah, if you bear with me, uh, will, will help us with that. I want to bring you, now we've gone from the Pshat to the Midrash. Let's go to 
an interesting Sfasemes. Sfasemes was the grandson of the Chidushe Arim, which was the Polish branch of Hasidus that came from the Choyzeh and the Yida Kodesh and the whole Kotsk school of Hasidut. The Tolna Rebbe invokes an interesting comment on the Sfasemes in this parsha. What happened between the brothers Yosef and Yehuda and Yosef, he claims was not sibling rivalry. The hard feelings between them were not because the brothers thought Yosef was a tittle-tattle. What the Sfas MS is saying is that we are dealing with a fundamental conflict about what is Yiddishkeit. What is Yiddishkeit? There's a dispute between Yosef and his brothers as to the proper approach of the Jew in his practice of Yiddishkeit. Yosef's philosophy was to be holy and separate only to God alone. Only to God alone. And they bring a posuk from Shmos, Zoveyach lelohim yacharam, bilti ladonai lavadon. Whoever sacrifices anything to other than the Lord alone shall be prescribed. Only God can be sacrificed to. Meaning, Ladonai Levado became, for the Svasemes, the motto of Yosef. Meaning, I call this the ideological dispute between the two brothers, which I will then internalize within myself. Yosef felt a person should be a loner, should grow spiritually through inner contemplation, through steiging in learning, having as little interaction with the outside world as possible. Wall yourself in the Kosle Beis Medrash. Go to Lakewood, shut the doors, shutter everything down, and come back in 20 years. Because that just takes away from a personal, personal growth. Personal growth requires you to sit on the top of a mountain and contemplate, sit in the base medrash. This is what the Torah means when it refers to Jacob's blessings, which was Birchos Avicha Govru Al Birchos Horai. The blessings of your father surpass the blessings of my ancestors. Atavas give us Olam to the top of the hills. Larosh Yosef, or Lakotko Nazir Echod, made a rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the elect of his brothers. He is the elect. Jacob on his deathbed looks at Yosef and says, You are the Spitz. And he saw in him the leadership. And the style of leadership is Givat Olam, the hoary mountains of high. Larosh Yosef. And that's the Nazir Echav. You are the Nazir, the elect. Well, what does Nazir also mean? A Nazir is a Nazir. What does a Nazir do? He is Poirish Miyayin. A Nazir is someone who's outside of society. He doesn't drink wine. He doesn't cut his hair. He doesn't go to funerals. He doesn't keep himself other than Tahor. He doesn't allow himself to become Tomei. He is Kadosh. Remember the Gemara says... When he stops being a Nazi, he has to bring a chatos. And there's a machloikis with Rav Meir and the Chachomim. Why does he bring the chatos? Does he bring the chatos? Because he was poirish from the world. Meaning, how dare you cut yourself off from wine and enjoying God's creation? How dare you? 
You decided on yourself to be holier than Torah? Bring a chatos. I understand you saw a soita, you had to be a nazir for what addiction you had, fine. But now you finished it, bring a chatos. The, the Rav Meir says, <laughs> no, he has to bring a chatos because he stopped being a nazir. He was the end of his nazirus. He went back to the real world. Well, bring a chatos. You should have stayed up there on the mountain. Machloikas. Here, by giving in the bracha of nazir olam, he is separated and holy, and that for Yaakov is the spitz. Then comes the philosophy of Yehuda and continues the Sfas Emes in the name of his grandfather, the Chidusha Arim. His job was to bring Kedusha down into this veld. His philosophy was to be involved in the world, what Hirsch would call an Ephraim Jew, to get involved in the world and to be involved with people. And I call that organic Yiddishkeit. I'll come back to that. Yehuda's philosophy was encapsulated not in Yaakov's bracha to him, because at that time he was not yet the leader. Later on, he will become the leader. By Moshe Rabbeinu in V'zois HaBrocha, which we all, when we get an Aliyah on Simchas Torah, everybody knows it. V'zois li Yehuda v'yomah, Shema Adonai kol Yehuda, listen to the voice of Judah, v'el amota v'yena, and bring it to the people. Yodov Ravlo, the Eze Mitzarotiyah. Bring it to the people. He was a people person. The fundamental dispute between Yosef and Yehuda was the lonely man of faith of Soloveitchik or the Lubavitcher that goes out to the world. Outreach or inreach. Now, that's what the Svasemis takes. So we've gone from the Pshat to the Drush about Vayigash, Elov Yehuda. And, and the Sfasemis says this Vayigash, Elov, this murderous impulse, according to the Medrash, was a fight for the very survival of what Judaism is. What is the vision for Judaism? Is it Yosef or Yehuda? And for Hirsch, it's the Ephraim Jew or the Yehuda Jew. Now, it's interesting that when the Sfas Emes is quoting his father, he now brings that machlokus down to his little shtetl. You have to understand that in Hasidus, there also was, wasn't just between Litvak and Misnagdim, between the ivory tower of the yeshiva belt and the free-flowing, wine-drinking, outgoing Hoi polloi of the proletariat Hasidus, as Dubno would call it. It actually occurred within Polish Hasidus. There was a counter-revolution and a split. I've spoken about this. That the Yida Kodosh felt that we have to get back to the learning. We have to get back to the philosophy, the Maharal. And so within Polish Hasidus, a split occurred. And the Sfasemis writes that he heard from his grandfather that this very dispute between Yosef and Yehuda was an old disagreement among the pioneers of the Hasidic movement. The revolution in the spirituality of Judaism. Is this a head game? Is this something that is an intellectual exercise of Torah learning that's preempted? Is it Tveikas from the heart? How do you balance the two? 
Some of the founders of the movement felt that it should be an elitist movement. That only happened not in Ukraine. It happened in Polish Hasidus. That there should be a few dedicated Hasidim who would be a disciple of a Rebbe, extremely holy people rep representing quality over quantity. Others felt that Hasidus should become a mass movement, that the Rebbe should reach out and spread the word and attract as many people as possible. Like no one is better in the history of Hasidus than the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now comes along the Tolna Rebbe, a disciple, and actually fleshed out what the Sfasemis was saying. He didn't want to say it, the Sfasemis didn't want to say it in the terms of the Chidush Erim, because it was really embarrassing. Because after the Kotzke Rebbe, that famous Simchus Torah in 1937, went in seclusion for 20 years, basically the mantle of leadership went to Ger. As I keep saying, Ger chapt alles. <laughs> then and after the war, Ger chapt alles. So the Kotzke Rebbe didn't want thousands of Hasidim. Kotzk was a Hasidist that was not for the faint-hearted. The Rebbe actually chased people away. They would run to the Ishbits, in fact. When a Hasid came to the Kotzk Rebbe and bemoaned the fact that his cow was not giving any milk, like, he, like any Hasid would go to his Rebbe, <laughs> the Kotzk Rebbe replied, don't come to me with this problem, go to a veterinarian. <laughs> Your cow doesn't give milk. I'm, I'm reminded uh, when the Briskarov was crossing over into Switzerland, so of Herzog said to him, you know that the third Geula uh, is coming and it's a good thing. And that should be chasing you. He says, the only thing that's chasing me is a gun pointing at me. <laughs> he was very down to earth. When, uh, right? And the Kotzker clientele was not the masses. It was a very few subset of humanity, the Kadoshe Elion. And by the end, the Kotzke Rebbe had very few Hasidim left. In fact, there is no Kotzk dynasty right now. All his pupils have dynasties. There are Domsker and the Vurka and the Ger and Alexander and Ishbitz and Radzin, right? These are all flowers of the Kotzk Pshisk dynasty. And Ger, on the other hand, had thousands of Hasidim. Totally different approach to Hasidus. You had a problem with your cow, you go to the Gera Rebbe. The dispute over which approach in spirituality to adopt is an old machloikas in Klal Yisrael. It goes back, according to the Tolda Rebbe, to Yosef and Yehuda. Should a person be a Nazir Echov, a Nazir Echov like Yosef, the El Amov to Vienna, or should he go with El Amoft, go to the people and bring them, the Yehuda person. If the truth be told, the only way Yosef could have spiritually survived in Mitzrayim is by the approach of uh, the Nazir Echad, right? I mean, look what he went through. When someone's sitting in Egypt and there's no family, no support, he had better be able to grow spiritually with his own little cubicle. They say in Russia, the only Jews that survived from kites coming out of Russia, most of them were assimilated when they came to Israel and America. The only Jews really were the Chabadskas and the Breslavas. Why? They understood his boininess and his boidedness. They understood how to seclude themselves and to seclude themselves and to survive. When a person is thrown into the dungeon with the dregs of society, the only way to survive is the philosophy of Nazir Echov. And this was the essence of the dispute between Yosef 
and his brother Yehuda. It was a philosophical battle, according to Shimshon Rafael Hirsch on the left and the Svasemis on the right. Okay, now what happened? When Yehuda said, Yosef, I'm ready to be your slave, as I said, when he said, Ani, Tachas Avdecha, I, right? Yeshev no Avdecha Tachas Nal, let your servant stay. Let me be your servant. Let me stay instead of the boy. What happened? I am ready to give up my approach for the sake of my father, Yaakov. I am ready to give up on my ideology for the sake of the family. I'm not going to stick to the end and split this family up. That was the trait of Yehuda. When Yosef saw that, when the philosopher king who was ivory tower secluded is told by his brother, his nemesis, his philosophical nemesis, that I am willing to give up my approach. I'm ready to give up my philosophy of life. Lo, your whole Yosef Lehistape. He couldn't hold back. Something got triggered in Yosef. His brother's willingness to throw in the towel and give up his own philosophy for the sake of keeping his word to his father that Binyamin would return home safely convinced him that it was the time to reveal himself. Now, it is my belief that Yehuda has been doing that for a millennium, giving in to Yosef. Uh, the Karlobachs have been giving in to the Litvaks. <laughs> Sooner or later, the Hasidim became more Litvish than the Litvish. The Yehuda has been doing this for a millennium, and yet an ideology, his ideology of Yosef and the intellectual and the art scroll and the book and the philosophical and the kashras being more important, as Hirsch says, than taking care of my fellow Yid has trumped. And a second point needs to be considered. When Yehuda's making his proposal to the viceroy and Rashi elaborates, elaborates and says, I am superior to Binyamin in all matters. In other words, he's telling Yosef, I'm a much better hostage than my younger brother, Binyamin. Whether we're speaking about strength, about being able to do battle, or being able to provide services. He says, I'm a better brother. Ligvura, milchama, ulashamesh. I understand shamesh. I'm a better shamas. Milchama, I'm a better warrior. What does gvura mean? The Sipse Chachomim wonders, what is the implication of gvura? It's, it's redundant. You just got, sorry, got through saying milchama. What is gvura? What does Rashi mean when saying that Yehuda is saying, I am better than Benjamin, meaning I am better than Rachel's children, meaning I'm better than you, right? My approach to Yiddishkeit as Yehuda, as the Kalabach, as the Lubavitcher is better than yours. What does it mean, Ligvura? It can't be military, because he said that by Milchama. So Rashi is referring to the Gvura of Perkeovas, Ezehu Hagibor, Hakovesh Es Yitro, someone who is able to conquer his own inner desires, one who's the ability to say, fine, I'll give in on I will be I'll be Mavate, Ich Fagin, I will Fagin. And when Yosef sees this expression on 
Yehuda's part, ich vergin. I'm kovish as my yetzer. I'm willing to give up on ideology. Okay, right now your approach is the one we'll adopt. He was ready to reveal himself and ready to reconcile with his brothers. And Yosef says he is right and I am right. And now we can be a unified nation. So now we go back to the Aftorah. Now you, son of man, take upon one wooden tablet for Yehuda, the children of Israel, and another tablet for Yosef, the wooden tablet of Ephraim, and bring them together and intertwine them. And what the prophet is saying, I believe, is that in the future, not now, in the future, there will be a wedding of the two inoperable, inapproachable and irreconcilable operating systems. It's as if one's a PC and one's a Mac and they just can't interface. And that will happen uh, on in the hoary future. Now, let me end up with saying, how do I integrate everything we've talked about within Psyche? That is, the Soid is taking whatever is up there and integrating it. So within me, there's a Yosef. Within me, there's Yehuda. There's a head. There's a heart. There's a person who just wants to be secluded in his four walls and left alone and not be muttered. And then there's the one who just gets calls from patients in the middle of the night. And I feel I need to do it. You know, that's part of my vocation. So I'm torn as well. So I, I want to end up with uh, what does this mean for my own internal spiritual struggle within my own psyche. Uh, my Yosef, the Yosef within me, uh, wishes order, leadership, rationality, ideology, a divine truth structure that I can rely on, a theology, a decision-making based on dar data, data, not intuition, data. Give me the data. My Yehuda, the Yehuda within me, realizes this and sees the body life and the divine as provisional, as organic, uh, where decision-making is midrashically imagined as body parts. I have a gut feeling. I have a cardiac sensation. I have a tingling, a non-rational impression. This smells funny. That smells off. I've got a bad taste in my mouth. There's a fear I feel in the pit of my stomach. All this goes into my intuition and my judgment making. All of this, not the rational mind. I had a patient last night in Jerusalem that fell and hit her head and she was having some symptoms around the mouth and some articulation symptoms. And she'd been to the hospital. She had a CAT scan and nothing made sense. She'd seen two neurologists, right? And I'm listening to her story and something didn't sit right. It wasn't my mind. It was my intuition. It didn't smell right. And I just had to take away the concussion. And if I took out the concussion as a red herring, it all made sense. It's that kind of intuitive thinking. It was with the body. It was not with my head. A theology divested of its rational, philosophical Yosef mindset. What would that look like? If we didn't have the art scroll Chumish and the art scroll Halacha and the art scroll this to pull down every minute we had a question, what would our intuitive Halachic thinking look like? It, 
it would not privilege the Joseph mindset. It would be a kind of Yehuda, organic, collective, intuitive sensation. Well, guess what? We've had that for 2,000 years. We've just been giving in to the Gedolim and the Psak and the Halacha and the black and white. You know what? We still smell the, on Moshe Shabbos three times and we still put the, the wine between our eyes behind the thing. We still do stuff that other people would say, oh, that's just superstition. It's not in the Halacha. We still do it. Yesterday, <laughs> yesterday's Daf Yomi, my Daf Titi, talk about Shmura Matzah in Psachim 40. What could I say about Shmura Matzah? It's a, it's a Chumrah, and I bring all the Rishonim and the Acharon. At the end of the day, what's the ditty part of the Duff? And I found an article in which it talked about Reformed Jews buying Shmura Matzah paste, <laughs> insisting that it be Shmura Matzah paste. Now, I ask you, a reformed Jew guy goes to shul, but he drives to shul and he doesn't keep Yom Tov and he eats out fish and he eats out wine. And But when it came to Pesach, something in his kishka said, I want Shmura Matzah paste. This is what I'm talking about. It's a gutsy type of thing. I think the very development of Midrash after the Churban, the Piyotim, and the Paitanim after the Crusades, the Hasidic imagination after Khmelniki massacre, gives me that ample trajectory for a post-Holocaust imagining of our tradition, away from this American Western technocratic data-driven halachic mindset, and more towards a new kind of intuitive Kishka-based praxis that will kind of bubble up from the collective unconscious, from the rituals and personal feelings, and from all the the, the mamaloshan and the bubermeisters and all the kameis and all the all the little shtiklach that made us such a rich environment that has been stripped away by 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 this this 19th century turn away from all this minhagim back to the sources, a kind of Protestant revivalist applied to Gomorrah, and come back to the feelings of Yehuda consciousness, which after all, Yehuda represents Malthus, which represents Shechina. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Stay warm and stay safe.